0: Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're exploring and learning about rare Islamic books. I am joined by Roxana Kashani, who's recently been hired to lead a new Islamic department at Shapiro Rare Books in London. Roxana's many areas of expertise include manuscripts from the Near East and early printing in the Islamic world. Welcome, Roxana.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for for joining us. Um, So it sounds like a super interesting job. Perhaps you can start by giving us a description of a typical day for you at Shapiro Rare Books.
1: Absolutely. It is a very interesting job. Um, I'd probably better to describe um, a day in the office and not a day working from home, which is quite a lot these days. Um, but I typically head in, get myself a cup of coffee and spend the first few hours um, cataloguing a manuscript more often than not so I'll be um, collating the manuscript, finding comparable examples in institutions, Um, I'd probably spend some time with the photographer getting the manuscript shot. Um, Again outside of of Covid times I'd probably be meeting clients and um, either doing valuations and looking at Um, manuscripts of valuation or trying to find clients uh, some wants and sourcing pieces for them Um, there's never a dull day it's it's often very varied and um, what the only thing that is constant is that I do always feel very privileged to be able to work with such wonderful pieces on a daily basis
0: so when I when I heard about you getting hired um, and we had a little chat on email I had to admit I know so little about Islamic books, but one thing that came to my mind immediately were Qurans. So I'm wondering if you work with Qurans on a regular basis in your work with Shapiro.
1: Yes, absolutely. Qurans and Quranic texts are a big part of the job. Um, but I would say that it's not quite the same as um, uh, uh, one might think of Bibles in the West. Um Qurans are very varied and there are very strict divisions of the Quran in Islamic scribal traditions. So you could have a Quran that's bound in two volumes in four volumes um and actually quite commonly in 30 volumes and one of each of these 30 volumes is is described as a juz it's called a juz of a Quran. Um so I may only be cataloguing one juz of a Quran, which is only a small section of the Quran, or even smaller than that, if I'm dealing with an earlier manuscript of perhaps the ninth, tenth, or eleventh centuries, I may be dealing with a single leaf from the Quran. So, you know, I'd be trying to identify which part of the text that is from, from the one leaf that I have. Um, and and furthermore, we also have panels of calligraphy. Um, that are just a few verses from the Quran. So, yes, I do deal with Qurans very regularly, but it's not always just a Quran in the way that we think of a Bible. Um, there are many, many different forms of the Quran that I come across on a daily basis.
0: I was also wondering if there is a similar uh, Islamic tradition of books and writing that is, is comparable to the Western tradition that we know. Uh, where we had manuscripts in the medieval period before the invention of the Gutenberg press. Is it earlier? Well, can you give us a clue of the early tradition of books and writing?
1: Yes, well, I mean, I I wouldn't want to necessarily say that one was earlier than the other. Um, But I, I do think it's safe to say that the sort of tradition of, calligraphy and scribal practices in the islamic world were certainly more prolific um, in in the sort of what we'd consider the golden age of islam than in the early medieval period in the west um sort of western scribal practices are very much rooted in um monasteries and very much linked to the church and monastic practices um at that period whereas um the Islamic scribal tradition is much more rooted in their culture um, and in their golden age of Islam, which I would say is also a little, slightly later than the early medieval period in the West and also lasted longer. So it's difficult to compare them. But um, the scholars at that time were translating classical texts. Of say Euclid and Aristotle into Persian and Arabic and making them accessible and this led to an absolute explosion in um, With with scholars and, and Polymaths in areas of maths and algebra trigonometry medicine physics, so um, There was there was a lot going on in that period and I I, I don't think it's necessarily because one side was more progressive than the other. But I, I just think the tradition of writing is a lot more deep-rooted. Um, there were scriptoriums and um, sort of schools outside of the church, where, well, not church, but um, mosque, um, where people would, would write. And copying texts was quite a common thing to do before the invention of printing in the Islamic world. So. Um, Reading and being able to write were a lot more common generally in the Islamic world than, than in the West at that time.
0: What's a scriptorium?
1: Somewhere where you'd learn to write.
0: <laughs> a school?
1: Uh, yes, a school and a sort of a workshop, I suppose you'd call it, a workshop where um, you would be copying texts whether they were Quranic or scientific or mathematical, you'd be um, copying text so that you'd have um, another version of them. Um,
0: So you mentioned a golden age. Uh, So I think would it be fair to say that covers science and culture uh, for the for the Islamic world?
1: Yes, absolutely. So this golden age is is considered to be from the eighth to the 14th century. So. sort of from halfway through the medieval, early medieval period through to the sort of late medieval period in in the West, um, where, as I say, there was um, a sort of explosion in the sciences, um, in um, architecture, in art, um, in literature, through the Islamic world. So, you know, from from Persia all the way to modern day Morocco and the Maghreb. where there was a lot of trade happening and, as I say, progress in the worlds of um, of science and mathematics and medicine um, that was inspired by um, the classicists' texts.
0: Right. Now, were there technological influences on Islamic books in the same way that for Europe the Gutenberg Press changed mass communication?
1: So they, in short, I'd, I'd argue that no, there wasn't. Um, I, I believe this is partly because the Arabic script and the Persian scripts are very difficult to translate into type. Um, in Western, most Western languages, you'd have um, upper and lowercase letters. But in the Arabic Um, alphabet one letter can have three different types of form so uh, depending on whether it appears at the beginning or the middle or the end of a word so you can just imagine in trying to set up a printing press um, just the physical complications in getting the alphabet and that's Uh, you then have dots and dashes above and below each of these letters. So there would have been so many complications and um, hurdles (laughs) to overcome in trying to print the Arabic text that it didn't really happen in the Islamic world for many, many, many um, centuries after the Gutenberg press. And actually, I would argue that it didn't really become mass communication. Printing wasn't really on mass until as late as the 19th century. And even then, it was with lithography that it happened. And um, lithography allowed manuscripts, so texts that had been copied by hand, to then be reproduced in printed form. So interestingly, it, it still links back to that um, history of of manuscripts and copying texts by hand. Um, there I mean there are early printing presses um, in the Middle East, but they are eighteenth century and very fewer before then. Um, mainly it's the Mutafarika Press in Constantinople, the Dar al Shawe Press in Lebanon, and then later on the Bullock Press in Egypt. And um, they created typeset fonts Um, as I say, in the 18th century. But it wasn't until much later in the 19th century with lithography that I'd say mass communication via printing was available in these
0: regions. Right. Um, So perhaps you can explain which regions you focus on. Are there specific cities like the ones you mentioned? When I'm reading about these type of books, I see the term Persia Mm -hmm. mentioned many times.
1: Yes. Well, um, in terms of manuscripts and printed material, um, I don't focus on one area specifically. Um, I think this area of collecting, much like you know any other area of collecting, you really are looking for three, three key components. Um, and those are you know how scarce how scarce the text is, whether it's Um, something that's been copied prolifically or if it's quite a rare item. You're looking at the provenance to see if it's copied by any notable scribe um, or perhaps copied for a noble patron or anyone of of importance. Um, And you're looking for condition against other examples. Now, these can be from anywhere in the world. Um, I'd say I come across manuscripts From some regions more than others simply because they were more prolific in manuscript production at that time. Um, I see a lot of manuscripts from Herat, from Shiraz, um, Damascus, places like Istanbul and Egypt as well. Over different periods these are the sort of main hubs. Um, It's interesting that you say um, (laughs) Persia. I do think Persia is... um, used a lot in in antiquarian book selling and i must say i think it's a little bit antiquated Um, i think it's important to start referring to um persian art and persian books as from iran and persia changed its name in 1935 (laughs) i think it's possibly time to move on and interestingly, um, the VNA is actually um, about to launch an exhibition um, entitled Epic Iran. And as far as I know, it's the first time that um, an exhibition or kind of public um, exhibition in that sort of size of that size has been um, named after Iran in reference to Persian art. And I think it's fabulous.
0: <laughs> right, duly noted. <laughs> uh, okay, here's an here's another rather uh, dumb question from me here. But in terms of fiction, is there are there Islamic equivalents of people like Dante and Shakespeare, people who paved the way for everybody else?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I'd say probably the most important author that comes to mind is Abdul Qasim Ferdosi. And um, he's a he was a Persian poet that died in 1026, so the 11th century of Samanid Persian period, and um, he wrote a book called the Shahnameh, which means the Book of Kings, and um, this is a vast compendium of both historical and mythical stories of kings and their kinship and their valour and it's deep-rooted and very vividly um, describing stories of that relate to persian culture and what's interesting about these is that Ferjosi tried to preserve pre-islamic myths um, of persia's what we call golden era which was before the arab revolution of the seventh century so and the aim was to compile these these texts um, and histories and myths to save them and preserve them for future generations and not only um did he use myths and legends predating the arab conquest but he also used a language that was um void of any arab influence so actually it's become one of the most fundamental literary texts of modern Farsi, which is the language that's spoken today, because it has been able to do exactly that, preserve that old language, the old history, and all the culture and stories that went with it.
0: So he was writing like a, like an epic saga, or was it like a series of stories? Are we talking about something equivalent of Arthurian legend?
1: Yes, it's a vast collection of, of stories. Um, I'd say probably about half of them are based on real kings and half of them are mythical um it's a and the two intertwine they weave in and out of each other i i wouldn't call it a historical compendium because that just wouldn't be accurate um but it's it is more akin to Arthurial legend than um anything else
0: few moments ago, you, you listed some of the things that you look for that are important in, in an Islamic book. You didn't mention um, illuminations or illustrations. Is is art an important thing when you're looking at uh, books from these early times?
1: Absolutely. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the only thing we're looking for, because so often with these texts, uh, we're dealing with, I mean, if, for example, if we take the Shahnan there. Um, it's it's almost a thousand years worth of manuscripts that we have available. So sometimes um, I will be looking at a, a single leaf of the Shahnameh that doesn't have any illustrations, but is a very early example of the text. So um, that that would be important because, as I say, it's an early early example. Other times, um, a Shahnameh leaf might be important because it illustrates a scene. Um, from the Shahnameh in uh, a beautifully preserved illustration in the form of a beautifully preserved illustration. So um, I didn't mention illustration because it's it isn't the be all and end all of manuscripts. Um, and condition is important, but. Not always when you're dealing with fragments that are potentially a thousand years old. Um, it's it's all about taking these different factors and. And. Um, putting them into context.
0: So some listeners will be familiar with uh, 1001 Nights. Um, so I'm wondering if folklore has a long history in Islamic storytelling and books.
1: Yes, it does. Absolutely. Um, one particular example comes to mind, and that's the muqamat of Hariri of Basra. Um, Hariri died in 1122 and was an Arabic poet of the Seljuk Empire, which is in modern day Iraq. Um, and during his lifetime, he collected, uh, he wrote a collection of um, sort of literary and poetic anecdotes. And um, these were mainly um rooted in oral tradition and they were memorised and performed for crowds and they were hugely um, popular at the time but what's interesting is because they were so deeply rooted in oral tradition there aren't very many manuscript copies of the text that are contemporary to the author um, making early copies exceptionally rare. Um, It's a mix of verse and literary prose, and it's become one of the most treasured texts in the Arab language. But because it was (laughs) meant to be performed, um, there aren't many early copies available. So it's interesting. Yes, there are huge literary traditions of um, oral traditions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there are many literary examples available.
0: And there must be uh, tremendous variations in the text.
1: Yes. Yes, there are very, very... Depending on um, which area they were written in, you know, how much the story changed before it got there.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Do you you see many books that um, were created in Spain from the uh, Moorish colonization of that country?
1: Yes, we do. Yes, we see... um, they are very collectible and quite rare um, but yes Andalusian manuscripts are um, oh, they do pop up on the market they are seen uh, they're really interesting because um, if they you see a real mixture of the western um, and arab mix in, in the manuscripts so the vellum or parchment that they use would have been very different to that that was produced in the Arab world. Um, the types of ink that were used, the the um, st- the pigments used in the illumination, um, very very different when you're dealing with Andalusian manuscripts.
0: Right. Okay. It's a bit closer to home, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah Just where they've stretched into Europe. Um, I I presume that the one reason for me not having a high level of knowledge about Islamic uh, rare books is, is simply the language. Um, it, it, does that m- silo your work in some way or m- you ha- mean that you have a very specific set of clients that you work with?
1: Yes, um, generally people don't want to have books on their shelves if they can't read them. <laughs> um, but what I have noticed is um, there are Western collect- collectors that are interested in um, in single leaves, and, and they are then framed and mounted on walls, and a very sort of visual decorative um, objects but also there's a sort of movement towards islamic art um i think at the moment and a lot of these um sort of 15th 16th 17th century persian miniature paintings um are becoming very very collectible in um in the western world and i mean they to a certain extent they always have been but i think by a much broader audience um that maybe doesn't um read the script they might be able to see in the the scene that's been described in in the illustration itself I also came across somebody a few years ago that collected Qurans simply because they thought that they were beautiful um, regardless of the fact they, they weren't um, Islamic and they couldn't read Arabic but they just thought the script itself was um Beautiful and worthy of their collection. So, you know, there are so many different ways of collecting, um, but the language is, um, it does cause problems sometimes.
0: <laughs> Can I ask uh, what, one more additional question? Um, where did you acquire your knowledge? How did you learn about rare Islamic books? Where did you go to study?
1: Um, I'm Iranian. So my, my father's Iranian, my mother's English, and I actually grew up in Tehran. <laughs> so um, I have always uh, had a huge passion for uh, Persian history, and um, I studied uh, literature, and I did a master's in art history, and um, started actually working in museum archives, because I loved rare books. I worked in a prints and drawings archive, and I felt um, almost saddened by the fact that I was the only person that had access to this incredible collection. Um, So Swiftly joined um, the book department of a London auction house, and because I was the only person that could read these languages, I started cataloguing them all in the department and that was about ten years ago and since then it's um, it's just sort of grown and grown and, and I absolutely love it. <laughs> feel very privileged.
0: Yes, well, yeah, what a great journey. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, you're very lucky. Uh, okay, one final question uh, which we ask all our guests and that is what book or books are you currently reading?
1: um well this is probably not very exciting to the general public but i'm reading a book about arabic studies in the netherlands
0: <laughs> <laughs> you that is very niche
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes I, I would have thought so
0: <laughs> yes uh, i can't remember a few few years ago i was interviewing some academic about some facets of rare books and the had bu- this question at the end she said she was reading outlander uh <laughs> i was hoping you were going to say something like that or or bridgerton
1: <laughs> sorry no
0: no you you, you take your work always, home with you
1: always broadening my horizons <laughs> yeah.
0: all right okay uh, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, many thanks to Roxana Kashani for joining us. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It was a it was a fun conversation. Uh, Roxana Kashani has recently been hired to lead a new Islamic department at Shapiro Rare Books in London. Uh, good luck to her. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name's Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast. And we'll see you all again soon.